we had a line in the sand that when we crossed it, we'd get into contact. So, you know, naturally being good soldiers and, and good Australians, we went and started that fight. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Do often. I leave under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you're listening to Life on the Line. Ryan Shaw joined the Australian Defence Force in 2006. During his 14-year career in the military, he was a sniper team leader, deployed to Timor and Afghanistan, and worked in border protection. Today, he's the director of Gaythorn RSL in Brisbane. This is our conversation, recorded in March at the RSL. Ryan, welcome to Life on the Line. Well, thank you very much, Alex. It's an honour to be here. Ryan, where were you born? I was born in a town called Belmont in New South Wales. I grew up in an area called the Central Coast and we had surfing, shooting, four-wheel driving, a combination of everything where I grew up. And so was that sort of your main interest area in childhood outdoor activities? And Yeah, probably so. So I was heavily influenced by sport growing up. I had a father who was a bit of a country man that moved to the city but never took the country out of him. So we grew up on farms and going to the city, all sorts of things. It was a great area. Do you have any military history in the family? I do, not for a long time. I think the last member to serve before me was the First World War. His name was Lendon. He was a photographer and toured most of the battlefields growing up. I've got a, some of his bayonets and original photos hanging up on my wall at home. So was your initial interest in the military, did that come from the shooting? Did that come from sort of the family heirloom or general Australiana or Anzac legends? Like, do you recall what first tweaked your interest? It's actually quite uneventful, to be honest. I think at the age of 11, I decided I wanted to play professional football. So I started a heavy regime from then till about the age of 18 of training twice a day, included boxing, running long distances. I did sacrifice a significant portion of my youth for this dream. And as I neared the age of 18, I had to take a break from my training and from my football just to catch up on things. And at the time, a lot of my friends and colleagues were getting selected to play footy. I think there was a gentleman on my team called James Maloney at the time, and we all know how successful he went into the NRL. And it was the realisation that I was not going to play football. And it was just a beer with my uncle out the backyard. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. Why don't you join the army? And to be honest, I didn't know much about the army at the time. I don't think I'd even met a soldier. So I went home and Googled it the next day and that was it. I joined up. You would have been a teenager when 9-11 happened? Yeah, I, I actually remember getting woken up to watch it on TV. Like live in the middle of the night? Yeah, we, I watched the first part of it that was live for us. It was real late. My brother come rushing in and he, he was quite a, a smart person for his age. He knew exactly who was responsible. He was talking about Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda. I don't think anyone in my community or town really knew those words at the time. And then I went to bed and mum got me up early in the morning and we just watched the news feeds and then that's all we talked about at school for that day. It's that life-changing day everyone remembers and then over the next few years we see Australian troops going to Afghanistan, not that much later we invade Iraq and then a few years later you're having that beer and deciding military's another pathway, quick Google. Did you have sort of thoughts and feelings about, because it's not, we're a nation that has recently and still was deployed in overseas operations, did that kind of aspect of it appeal to you? What was it about the military that from that Googling that made you think, yeah, that might be a good fit for me? Is it the physicality of it? I was just seeing pictures of uh, people out bush, people shooting, driving trucks, and it was kind of the excitement of the outdoors adventure. I think the assumption of deployment was certainly there. And it's quite interesting given where my career went. It's not abnormal to see other people in recon and snipers who've been down that same path, 
who were sports people who just didn't get into sports. So they looked at the defence. It's a natural transition, I guess, if you have that sense of adventure or that, that sense of performance. Oh, you could draw a paycheck for doing the best parts of your childhood. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tell me then about joining up and your early training experiences. If I'm being honest, when I joined the Defence Force, probably within the first 12 months, I was an awful soldier. I had a terrible attitude, poorly disciplined. I don't think a lot of people really wanted to work with me then and it's not their fault. I was just I just had a bad attitude. As a result of that, I think after about two years, after my first deployment, I had to work very hard to rebuild my reputation and I think that's what kick-started my desire for personal and professional development. I started reading a lot. I started practising a lot of strategies and tactics and reading PAMs and started teaching. I was quite lucky at that phase of my career. Some gap year soldiers came in and I took them under my wing to train them. That's kind of my introduction to the Army was just a bad attitude and uh, undisciplined person. Well, ahead of our chat today, you sent me your CV just as background and we're not going to hit every single point on it, but it's, you know, a long litany of courses or competitions and stuff like that. And it strikes me that the military, how much you put in is how much you can get out of it in that you can just cruise and sort of do the required amount and have a good time, but then you kind of act deliberately switch on and want and you reap what you sow from that. One of the years was a very lucky year for me. It did take me a long time to recover from that reputation. I still, to this day, I call it exile and it's an honour code thing. If you don't meet the standards of your group or your clan and you don't meet the honour code, then you'll you'll effectively be exiled and that's what I was. As a result of that, I, I posted out to another unit just to sort of recover and rest and that's probably the best thing that happened to me. It was a wake-up call. It gave me an opportunity to sort of hide and contain within myself and, and find mentors to get ready and, um, and get better. And I think when I came back, I was already in that position to demonstrate the new person that I was. I think in the modern corporate world, especially the era we live in today in an office environment, that kind of exile approach would uh, be seen as workplace bullying and sort of be managed. But in the military context, I can also see the case for, well, extrapolate that to being on deployment and if someone's not pulling their weight or is not up to standard then that puts the lives of everyone else around that soldier at risk so that level of um, ostracization there's a case to be made for that looking back at the time I'm sure it sucked but looking back do you feel obviously you felt it led to a good transition for you but do you look back and go yeah that was that worked and that was the right approach or you just happened to come out better for it the other side I wouldn't say that anyone really did anything that was ostracizing or bullying. My wake-up call was I was kicked off my first deployment and I was given a great opportunity as soon as I got to the battalion and it upset a lot of people in the new guy is I was put straight on an Afghan deployment. I was quickly realized by my team that my attitude wasn't at the standard of most people. Certainly in the concept of asymmetrical warfare, when you're sort of moving forward and your threats all around you in modern battlefields, you have to rely on that person behind you who's scanning their arc. And at the time, I wasn't that person. I wasn't that person that they could rely on. And in fact, I think many years later, the person who was responsible for signing off on taking me off that trip, I walked into his office to receive a, an award. First thing he said to me was, a long way since 2007, because even he acknowledged that I was that person back then and I'd made a significant effort to benefit myself to get there. So you join in 06, you have the deployment that was not to be in 07, and then in 2008 you deployed to Timor. Mm. What role did you have on that deployment and was the recent experience of being kicked off, uh, you know, an overseas deployment, how did that shape your attitude going into this one? I went over there as a, as a rifleman, as a Rio as they call them, where you replace somebody who's ripped out back to Australia. I went to a place called Bukau and then I went to Los Palos. So kind of out in the middle of nowhere, which was really good. It gave me an opportunity to sort of reflect. And I had some good section commanders out there with us. Parts of my reputation had navigated themselves out there. I don't know how. I did have a good section commander who sat me down and was willing to sort of mentor me and kickstart that, you know, it's not over. And that's why I never believed in the idea of failure because my exile in my early parts of my career was just, I thought it was the end. I have a saying, whenever things don't go my way, 
is it's the best thing that never happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I've had that happen to me multiple times in my career where the, the one thing that I wanted so bad was turned out to be the best thing that never happened. And did you have a good time in Timon? Was that a good learning experience for you? Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. It was great that, you know, it's my first deployment. It was amazing because I'd missed out on that deployment and then a few months later I find myself overseas again. It was that adventure that was I joined for that was calling me. It was a very good time to go over as well for an infantryman. I was over there when the attempted assassination on the president occurred. Uh, one week we're just kind of sitting on our bums going out on these engagements with the locals and then the next minute an op-ord comes over the radio to say we're going on a new operation and we asked what happened and the uh, head of the rebels attempted to assassinate the president and we were going to go look for them in the jungles. And what happened next? A series of patrols, which were VCPs pulling up in main positions where we thought the rebels were. This was my real introduction into reconnaissance, actually, because I was just sitting in this VCP, minding my own business with my section commander, and this guy's come down from the hill, all cammed up and filthy and covered in like rags. And I thought, who are these guys? And they'd been sitting up in the hill for, for days, taking photos and reporting. They had all this cool equipment on them like optics and fancy radios. This was kind of my intro into the battalion life at that stage. It wasn't a very eventful operation. I don't think we detained anyone where we were and I know that the SAS came in at that stage as well and were quite successful with their operation. But it's one of those things where you've learned these skills, you've practiced them over and over again at home and then you're getting to utilise them in a real-world scenario where there's been real-world events happening around it. It's not just an exercise out in a New South Wales or something like that. So it is, I can only imagine it's, you're getting to play the footy game as that analogy goes that you've trained for. So That's one of the, the beauties of deployments is I think one of the things that got me out of the army was it was just this realisation that I was sitting on a hill staring at nothing. In the army, sometimes commanders like to do this thing called ISR saturation and it's where they send out a bunch of recon guys or a sniper pair just on a hill to saturate the area and it just turned out that I was saturating an area that was filled with metal targets overlooking a scenario where a company was going to assault two or three days later. So, you know, there was nothing there. We're just staring at targets and drawing pictures and asking for a scenario for us to, to report on. And that's what sort of got me out of the army. When you're on operation, that's the reality of it. I think one of the things I did outside the army in reserves is what made that exciting for me again, if that makes sense. We'll get to that, but uh, just coming back to, I guess, or Timor and coming home from Timor, the Diganet had done its thing and got word of your old reputation in the lead up over there. Did you come home feeling like, I guess, that sort of act of redemption and you're switched on next phase of your soldier career, ready to go? I think it did help. I did have a lot of work to do from there. During the time I was over there, we did get a mass amount of recruits come into the battalion. So it sort of created a less pool of the Diganet, I guess you could say. I think I still had a lot of work to do at that stage. I went and did a support course after that. I did SIGs. I did well on the SIG course and sort of made my own friends, my own network, and then from there sort of just worked on that. You leave 2RAR for the Combat Training Centre in 2009 and then in 2011 you're back with them to deploy to Afghanistan. I guess over that period of several years there, how did you feel about your growth and maturation as a soldier, your skills upgrading and so on? Yeah, I thought that was the best thing for me going there. I met a gentleman when I was in Melbourne on a course and it was during the time I was down, I was at CTC, bumped into him and I said, how are you going? He said, what are you doing these days? And I said, oh, I had to take a break and go to another unit just to reset. And he had a laugh because I'd only been in for about two years or something like that and he said, why would you need to take a break you know, two years in your career? I think it sort of hit me. The reason why I was there was to sort of reset and use that time as an opportunity to get better and create more experiences. When you make a good decision, a decision based on a series of decisions. It's like a picture. You know, a picture paints a thousand words. So does experience. And when you're in the heat of a situation, you want to have something in the back of your head that you can look to that paints a thousand words in a second. And I sort of realised the only way to get there is to practice and make things permanent and then read. And I did. I read lots and lots and lots of PAMs and books. And I sort of looked to a lot of people that the battalion considered to be great soldiers. I thought, what makes them great? And I started taking notes and what they were doing and remembering 
things they were doing and you know it was a, just a series of building things for some people that unit is where you go when you're in trouble i asked to go there so i had a bunch of like-minded individuals around me a bunch of troublemakers and we worked very hard our little troublemaker group and we i think that last year we were there we got put on a lot of courses so it was just course after course which certainly helped interesting environment just get all the troublemakers in one pot and see what emerges yeah i think uh that's pretty much the the army isn't it really <laughs> when you when you look at battalions it's just a bunch of troublemakers so well then you get a second shot at afghanistan how were you told that you were going to be deploying there i come back from cdc and i went to Touraria and at the time the orbat had already been done up for who was going overseas so i was put in this little holding area where you go when when you're not going overseas one of the courses i did when i was in CTC was I did Pashto, the language in Afghanistan. They sent me down to Melbourne for three months and I learned about Pashtun Wali, the culture of Afghanis, basic rudimentary skills like reading and writing and conversations. So that was kind of on my record. And I've also had my SIG course behind me. And at the time, the battalion was looking for a SIG and having a SIG that was qualified in Pashto was a benefit. So while I was sitting around the cages, everybody was sort of complaining that they weren't going overseas. Somebody came in and said, you need to go see the CO. So I went to the CO and they said, you're going to be coming over with us, which was kind of cool because the battalion was going through some pretty rough training at the time and we sort of sit outside the cage and just eat our dim sims and our pies and just watch them. So I kind of missed the worst parts of the pre-deployment and all the best parts. So, yeah. <laughs> I know a few like that. I know um, Dan Kieran doing driver's courses and that got him over early and some cool deployments uh, sort of ahead of some of the others in his group and just having that the right skill set for what they need, whether that's by design or just coincidence sets you up and that combination, yeah, of the signals and the language that's going to set you in good stead. It's kind of just selling yourself really. Like I think a lot of people were just sitting down and complaining. They were saying, oh, I'm not on the trip. This sucks. It's really bad. But You were proactive. Yeah, I was going around just reminding people that I existed. The army is very social and if you spend time in the battalion, when you've got time off, you don't really just sit around. You kind of just walk around the cages and chat to your mates and see what they're doing. At the time, I was just using that as an opportunity to throw into the conversation. Oh, you guys are going over. Well, if there's a spot, you know, I've got Pashtu, I've got this course, I've got that course. And when it came time for me to get the trip, I remember, I instinctively remember hearing a conversation on the other side of the wall about a bunch of guys complaining, saying, oh, sure, he's going overseas. What did he do to get that? And it was just as simple as going out and selling myself. And it's what you do when you get out of the army. You sell yourself to a company. You sell yourself to you know, capital brokers. You, and that's what I did. Got myself over there. And when you get over there, what are your early first impressions from arriving or first patrol, getting to know the base what were those first days like for you there my first few days over there were not very eventful i was posted to a headquarters element at the start of my my journey in afghan and it was kind of boring i'd only really get an opportunity to go outside the wire when i sort of slipped in the back of the bushmasters with the oga platoon so when they went out on patrols to the g pound the government pound i'd go up to the patrol commander and say i've just finished a shift can i jump in and go on patrol and my first patrol, I can't remember if we were flying in or we were on the Bushmasters, but before your pre-deployment, you go through a lot of training and they talk about mines and how the Russians used to throw mines out of the windows of the helicopters and there's IDs everywhere and it's real dangerous. And I remember my first patrol, I got out of the Bushmaster and I just checked the ground. Yeah, I think we definitely drove there. I got out of the Bushmaster, I checked the ground I looked around for mines and then the commander pointed into a, an area and said, I need you to stand over there and face that direction and cover down the river. And I sort of jumped over this rock and in front of me was all this ground. And in my back of my mind, I was like, oh, there's, there's mines here. Every step I take is going to be my last. That was kind of my first impression of Afghan. And it's kind of funny to think in the back of my head how that journey sort of evolved to this jaded, you know, we were just pulling things out of the ground and just patrolling as everything was as normal. So my first impressions were a combination of boring excitement. It's kind of like a roller coaster, just waiting around and then that brief moment of, of excitement. Then I got the opportunity to sort of post to a place called Patrol Base Samad and that's where everything changed. A couple of months into my trip, my section commander of our little team kind of realised that I was hungry to get out and I was going out 
without permission and that sort of stuff. So he said, there's an opportunity to go out to Samad, do you want to tag it? And I took it straight away. And Trolve Samad was quite known at that time. They were the place in the Dorfshan Valley where the Taliban had to come through the green zone before they got to TK. So there was a lot of engagement with the Taliban, with these guys, and it was a small patrol base. It was, I think, 16 soldiers. There was a section of eight guys, a small headquarters element, and then a brick of infantry, a brick of engineers with a platoon of Afghanis. So it's like a 100 metres by 100 metre base and there was no power. Well, the power, there was a generator. It was always broken. The only reason why it was fixed is because one of the grunts was a diesel mechanic. We had no running water, so we were burning our feces and showering with a bush shower and the internet was sort of on and off. But, you know, it was the, it was the dream for an infantry soldier. It was, you're going to go live out field. And we were on rat packs and we were sort of stealing and acquiring fuel and pulling down our defences to cook food for fire and that. It was exciting. And that's where everything changed. It's where I went from this boring element of shift to out in the middle of nowhere. Everyone had a job and that job was, it's kind of like being on a ship where you have to earn your keep and earn your way. And I was going out on patrol whenever I got the opportunity. And, you know, my first patrol, I think I got into engagement with, with the Taliban. So it was very exciting. When you were out of that base, was your role first and foremost another infantryman or were they prioritising you for the SIG skills and Pashto? Or? I went out as the SIG and because we were such a small team, everyone kind of just was an infantryman, you know, infantryman first. There was an opportunity for me to sort of be a number three rifleman on one of the sections when there was patrols. And we had a medic there who was very proactive. So he kind of filled the SIG role when I went out on patrol and I filled the medic role back on base, I suppose you could say. I wasn't really a medic or anything. I was just sort of doing that so that we could keep ourselves out of trouble. And how did you find that first contact? Because, again, that's you getting to utilise a skill you've practised at home and we're talking more about practice over and over again and practice makes permanent and you want to ingrain those skills and get that right. How did you find that when actually being tested against that real-world environment? Was it automatic? It was. It was automatic because we had a good section commander. Thinking back to what my mind went through when, when the first rounds were fired at me. I didn't go into any, you know, I wasn't shocked or anything. I was like, oh, what's that? Are we in contact? And the guy in front of me said, yeah, what are you doing? And we sort of just fanned out. I think because the commander executed the plan so well, we sort of got hit on the left. So he sort of moved us around so that we were facing them, no longer on a flank. And then we got hit from another angle and he quickly moved us around. And it's like that area was set up for us. It was the worst place to ambush somebody because we just manoeuvred into this creek and we were just looking down at the enemy at the time. So it was very exciting. It was, I suppose it was exciting at the start, but over there, most of the contacts I went into just dragged on and on and on for ages and ages while you'd wait for decisions to be made at headquarters and that sort of stuff. So we kind of sat on that hill for a few hours. I was carrying a 66 at the time, which is a recoilless rocket. Usually the section commander says, crack the 66 and fire it. We're in contact and I had the 66. I basically cracked that thing straight away and just laid it next to me because I was going to fire a 66 in battle. It was what I wanted to do. (laughs) And the section commander basically said, Shory, prep the 66, fire it at that compound. And basically as he said the sentence, I pulled the trigger. We had already fired it at where we assumed the enemy were. You used your initiative. That's very yeah. important. Well, it's, you know, I, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was waiting for the order and when the order was given, it just happened to be a moment later. So, it was, yeah, and it was, it was quite funny. The, um, somebody took a picture of that and there's a picture where the rocket's out of the barrel and it's really cool to see that come out of that battle was that photo and I think after that we ended up going down the hill, so soldering forward. And one of the funny things about Afghan is there's a lot of marijuana and it's everywhere and it's really tall and huge. And you find yourself just patrolling through these huge fields of marijuana. And we got to the other end of the compound. At the time we had an American base down the road because our team was always in contact, our base was always in contact. The Americans would jump straight on the radio and they'd get out there because they wanted to get involved in the action. And we met up with this American patrol. In the army, they have this thing called a reorg, and it's when you sort of want to reorganise, it's one of the phases of battle, it's towards the end. So you've gone through your assault, gone through the enemy, you get to your reorg. I distinctively remember we were sort of sitting around in our reorg and all the Americans were on their guts, like behind cover, like doing the right thing. 
And me and a mate of mine and another guy were sort of just standing in the middle in open ground just smoking cigars, like laughing about this experience we've just had. And the Americans just looking at us, what is wrong with these guys? These guys are nuts. And then, boom, more rounds came in and we sort of tossed our cigars in the air and spun around in circles because when you get contact, they train you in the army to do this little movement. It's kind of funny to see. And you look for cover and you aim for it. I remember just spinning around in circles looking for cover and after a few spins I realised, well, this is getting me nowhere. So I sort of just hit the ground. Me and the other guy were just laughing at what we just did. What was even more funny was he made a joke about when you're at Kapuka, you're leopard crawling on the football oval. You know, the first time you're leopard crawling ever and it's hard and the corporals would always laugh and say it's never going to be this easy. And he was just rubbing this nice cooch grass that we were laying on going hey how good's this we're leopard crawling on the finest grass i've ever seen so you know it's a combination of funny foolishness and, and adrenaline it's a weird experience i can imagine the americans just aussies man what are you doing yeah they thought we were nuts it's funny even little things like that you said there was a picture taken of the rocket as it was coming out the barrel and it's not movies or tv where it's this relentless period of five ten minutes of action and then the battle's over it's kind of a punctuated equilibrium of you've got those moments of almost downtime and you're in a contact it's not really downtime but you're in cover someone can take a moment to take a picture as you fire the rocket i mean there's things like to a civilian they might sound incompatible which is testimony to the length of some of those engagements i might be wrong but i think it was a screenshot from a gopro okay but the, the fidelity and the high quality of it makes me question if it uh, i've seen many a mid-contact photo before it's like you know it's interesting when they do that and so did that become a bit more routine for you? Was that a, one of the rare experiences? Or We had a line in the sand that when we crossed it, we'd get into contact. So, you know, naturally being good soldiers and, and good Australians, we went and started that fight every time. We'd go out on patrol and be like, we're heading for this line. So it did happen a couple more times, very similar circumstances. It was something funny that happens along the way. I remember a few weeks later, we got hit from the right, you know, the team got separated. So we sort of had to run across open ground. But I remember that moment where we were just crossing an open field and there was nothing there. And then when the rounds came in and started peppering the team, I remember just spinning around again and looking for cover and realising, hey, there's nothing here, so you should just either move or lay down. So <laughs> I turned around and ran back and everyone went one way and me and another guy went another way. And then we were sort of behind cover. We realised that we're on our own. So we were like... It was like 100 metres open ground between us and where the other team were and they're in a real good position. I got on the radio and I said, hey, we're separated from you guys. So I said to the guy next to me, I think it was Phil, I said, we need to go marry up with the rest of the team. So they're going to just provide covering fire and we're going to run. I said, ready, set, go. He took off. Instead of running the entire direction, he stopped in the middle to cover me and I was like, oh, good job covering me and I stopped next to him to cover as well. It's kind of a foolish decision because, you know, you're in open ground and the other team was covering for us and all I hear on the radio is just his bikes just screaming, just go, 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 you're in the open ground and we ran across the field, got to the team. It was really interesting because a friend of mine had just been shot. He was on the ground and he, he was kind of in shock. He was and he wasn't in shock. He was going, oh, I think I've been shot in the leg, I've been injured. So I checked him over and he got shot in the dead centre of his plate on his back, I think it was his back or his front. The way that the armour was designed was that the pull cord for the armour to come off sort of ran over his plate and the round hit the plate. It must have like just reflected off it because he wasn't injured. Actually, he was bruised pretty bad and it snapped the cable and his armour just sort of fell to pieces. And he was also shot in the antenna on his little radio on his shoulder. His antenna had been shot off. He was kind of just sitting there and he was in this moment of realisation that he'd been shot and I looked him over and there was nothing wrong with him. I said, oh, there's no blood on you, there's no injuries. And just like that, he just snapped and said, okay, cool. And then just turned around and started engaging the enemy. And it was kind of a funny little transition from panic to a realisation that everything was fine. Well, the adrenaline kicks in and you can get, I'm sure the pain of the bruising or whatnot hits later when in downtime, if he's, you know, functional enough, keep going. Yeah, I, was, I don't think I'd be as good as him. He just went from concern to just not concerned in a moment of time. So there was no segue there at all. It was interesting to see. Did seeing that, just the fact that Australia had casualties by that point, did you ever have moments of concern about the danger of what you were doing? Not so much because 
you become a little bit jaded towards the end. Like where we were, we were isolated. So we, you know, we didn't have all the luxuries that a lot of people have on these trips, you know, the coffee shops and the, the pool tables and the cinemas and all the gyms and stuff. So you kind of just create your own little world in your head. And we had a good team. I think the only real danger that we consistently dealt with was the Afghan National Army. You know, I had a good relationship with the ANA where we were and that was just because of my language speaking. I would always actively go over to their little rec area and, and have conversations with them when I had free time. I remember being out on patrol. I just started the patrol, just crossed the river, getting ready to get shot at. We hear on the radio, stop, everyone go back to base. That never happens and you know something's happened, something bad has happened if they've just ceased all patrols. I looked at James, who was our platoon sergeant, I said, what, what's going on? And he goes, I don't know, something bad's happened, we've just been ordered back. And then more and more information came over the radio as we made the journey. They were saying that green on blue had occurred and three soldiers had been killed. And they won't say the names on the radio for obvious reasons because we had brothers who were serving together over there and family members and it's just bad practice. You don't want to find out. It's also stressful too. Like if you've got a brother serving and you hear someone shot, you want to know. That was really hard because we went from, we had to transition from, you know, looking for the enemy and being prepared for a fight to now watching the inside as well as the outside. You know, you lose trust with the Afghan straight away. You know, the Afghan National Army just turned on a bunch of us. That was a hard patrol back. And the following 24 to 48 hours was very hard too because our relationship with the Afghan National Army that we were training and, and sharing quarters with just changed. You know, it was, we don't trust these guys anymore. We have to be extra careful. That was the big danger. And that kept happening on our trip. It happened a few times where the Afghan National Army turned on us and that sort of stuff. Not on me, but it made for a difficult deployment following that event. So it was very segregated throughout, you'd say, very much us and them because you just couldn't let your guard down. Absolutely. And I think we had to change our TTPs, our night routine and that sort of stuff to sort of increase our security without fatiguing ourselves. And it was an interesting time. I'd still kept my best to sort of maintain that relationship with the Afghanis that we were with just because it was, you know, it was exciting. It was a learning curve. I spoke their language. I'll probably never speak this again, that sort of thing. So I was just trying to engage in the adventure of it. It was part of that, but it was also if I maintained friends with these guys, maybe they'll be less inclined to shoot at us. In your downtime, you describe a very bare bones kind of experience. Basically just sounds like glorified camping and it was that sort of the nature of it? I don't know because it was such a small area. It's kind of funny. We had nothing out there except a ping pong table and a small gym. And the only reason why we had the ping pong table is because when I was going out there, like my first time out there, I took the Chinook. There was a bunch of guys from Samad that had come to sort of get me. We collectively stole a ping pong table from the wreck area where at TK. And I remember the loadmaster's shock on his face just seeing these dudes like rolling this ping pong table across the tarmac, like, go, 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 get it on the chopper. And he's like saying, no, 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 that's not going to get on. It's not on the list of things. You know, downtime was kind of having little ping pong table competitions and sitting around the table and playing cards and we did have our laptops with us and power was at this stage later in the trip quite capable. We just play COD, managed to source a, an amount of Cat5 cable. So I ran a little server on my computer and we just played COD. Yeah, playing Call of Duty in downtime while on operational deployment in Afghanistan, just giving you that 24-7, keeping your amygdala fired and going. Yeah, yeah, I do think that's a, it's probably one of the worst ways to go to for downtime, you know, like your endocratic system, you're supposed to turn it over and start to recover after big patrols because you're on, you're on alert on patrols, especially if you get into a contact. Like you come back and your body just wants to just dump all its energy and pass out and then you're up and awake. You know, that's what we did in our downtime and I think that's quite common on most bases. What's your better, stronger skill set today, the language or the ping pong? I actually abstained from ping pong because I, I've always been bad at it and I was the spectator and the weird guy who sat on the sideline sometimes with a G-string on. <laughs> but the uh, it's quite funny speaking past you because I have, I went and did top pissing as well later in my career and I don't remember any of these words. It's kind of like I just went and did languages that I'll never 
never speak again. And I don't want to sound like rude or anything, but the only time I've ever spoken Pashto is in a cab. I once met an Afghani in Melbourne and spoke to him in the cab in Pashto. And then I met one on Anzac Day last year, drove me home from town and we spoke a little bit of Pashto on the way. I was terrible at it, but one of them things. Are there any other particular memorable moments, highs, lows, funny, serious that stand out to you that you want to share? There's plenty of weird moments. What you don't realise is when you're out in these patrol bases in the middle of nowhere, you kind of go a little bit nuts and you don't know because everyone else around you is nuts. Just towards the end of the trip, we had to do some handovers with the people who were going to replace us with the 8-9 RR team. So I put my hand up to disappear over to TK and I was looking forward to it because TK, you know, it had everything. So I was looking forward to a nice shower. I was going to go to the coffee shop and maybe watch some footy and stuff like that. I ripped out and met with the corporal who was going to exchange with the corporal that was at Samad. And I was telling him this joke and it just went on and on and on. At the end of the joke, he just looked at me and he said, that's the worst joke I've ever heard. He explained to me when he went to East Timor, he went through the same thing. He got sent out to his base in the middle of nowhere and he, he called it jaded. He, go, he goes, you, you're jaded. And he explained to me, when you're out in the middle of nowhere, you go a little crazy and things that are exciting to you are just not exciting to anyone. They're just boring and you're weird. And I started to notice it, started to notice the things that were coming to my head. And then we drove back to Samad. I'd never driven. I don't think people drove. They only drove a few times just because of the risk. Managed to avoid an IED this entire trip. And I'm sitting in the back of this Bushmaster and I thought, I'm just about to fly home to Australia a few days later. I thought if I get hit by an ID right now, that is just unlucky. Lo and behold, the patrol got hit. A car in front of us with a tiny ID just blew the wheel off. I remember getting back to the base thinking in my head, I'm going to look out for this jaded thing because I've had an opportunity to reintegrate with society back on Tarrant One of the guys comes rushing up to me and he goes, sure, sure, you've got to see this. It's so amazing. You've got to see what we've done. And I went and followed him out the back to our little hab and he's built this piece of crap shelf to put his boots on and everyone's standing around it going, wow, look at this shelf he's built. And I've realised then, like, that's what jaded looks like. So, yeah. The boot shrine shelf, that's amazing. It's a, Yeah, it sounds a little Lord of the Flies with a bit less anarchy but. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like it's, the guys actually called themselves the Lost Boys because at the early part of the trip they were under a company commander with a different company and they never got resupplied and things would always go wrong and that sort of stuff. So they kind of did go a little bit crazy, called themselves the Lost Boys because they were left out there on their own. It wasn't until later in the trip that a, a gentleman by the name of Major Gandhi become the OC of Alpha Company and Alpha Company took charge of Samad. He came out and asked what's going on and we just told him straight up, you know, under the old company we didn't get resupplied, things sucked, we've been on rats for forever. For us to get MREs we sort of negotiated with the Americans down the road to give us all their stuff. And then a few days later three shipping containers turn up with firewood and food and board games and all these cool things. They got the name Lost Boys because they were kind of left out there on their own for a while. Because I've interviewed a number of people who are based at TK for the bulk or all of their deployment and by comparison that is height of luxury. They have all the access to so much more equipment or facilities or just – but also I guess the proximity of more senior officers as well. There's – I don't know, there's just going to be that more traffic of people. It's like they're in the big city and then you're in the small country town. Mm, I remember being back there after being out there for so long when we'd all ripped back together. And we were just, you know, casually walking. I don't even know what we were doing wrong. I think we were walking on some rocks or something. And some guy in like a clean, crisp uniform just comes like storming over and just yells at us for not walking on the pathway. And we'd had something wrong with our bush hats or something. And I thought to myself, like, your experience of this war is so much different to mine. Yeah. Like, we, didn't, we didn't even care about that sort of stuff where we were. How long was your deployment all up from when till when? I can't say if it was eight or nine months, but I think I got there early, like with one of the earlier patrols and I left with one of the last groups. So I think it was just shy of nine months, I reckon. And that was all within 2011? I think I came back early 2020. 2012. Sorry, 2012. <laughs> How did you find coming home? It was okay. The way the Defence Force rips people out of deployments now is really bad. I remember when I came back from Timor, when we finished doing what we were doing, they put us in this resort for like three days or something. 
we basically just sat around the pool and had beers and went to psych interviews and meetings and stuff and you know they got us to calm down and get ready and if we had any issues with somebody or a falling out with someone you know, we sorted out there with afghan it was the complete opposite and i think they really handled that poorly because i had friends who were sent back to afghan because they did the wrong thing which is just stupid what happened was we come back to tk and due to some weather events we sort of had to wait around a day for the cloud cover to open. So we were kind of just stood too ready to get on a plane and fly out of there. And then it all happened real fast. It was the plane's here, the window's now. So we were out there sweeping snow off the um, airfield. We landed over back to the stopover between here and there. It was little to no sleep. We had to get our rifles in, had to prep for Aquas. We had to do all these things. I remember it being like real early in the morning, it was dark and we just lined up behind this table with this armourer whose job is it to inspect our weapons. That's all he does is he sits on this space and he was real rude to us and we hadn't slept. And the next thing you know, we're on a plane flying back to Australia. So it was like a little bit over a 24-hour, 48-hour period where it was just rush, 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 rush and then boom, let us go into society. At the time, I was in a household that was quite accepting of the idea that I needed to decompress so I went out with my mates and we had a few beers and we decompressed properly. So I think it was handled in a poor way and it was a difficult transition, but, you know, I got used to it pretty quick. It was quite funny because we, we had to report back to work the next day and for five days. So for five days we just sat in a lecture room and went through all this stuff. I don't remember a single thing that was talked to us about. I don't even know what they told us or whatever, but I just remember being in the room with a bunch of real pale, clammy-skinned people who'd just been out on the piss almost every night and people were spewing up and stuff. It was, you know, it was quite funny and, yeah. That's what ultimately is the most important aspect is the mateship, is the, the team bonding and I think that's probably the thing that got you through it the most. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the capabilities that sort of brings people into the defence. There's something the defence solves quite well is mateship, teamwork, and it's what carries us on to our, our desire to serve afterwards is we want to serve our mates. Well, Ryan, you go on to have quite an accomplished soldiering career. In 2012, you're the student of merit on the reconnaissance course. You get to compete in the prestigious Duke of Gloucester Cup, or the Dog Cup as it's known. In 2013, you're two RAR's champion soldier. With these top quality skills in reconnaissance, did you ever consider special forces? I did. One of the things I did when I went to CDC was I did selection for SAS. And I got to the end and they asked me to come back. I think that's one of the things that really helped me rebuild myself was that I finished selection and came back with a good attitude and it sort of got around that I'd done that. People realised, oh, this is a different man than what we used to work with. Is this in 2009, 2010? Yeah, yeah, around that period. I can't remember if it was 09 or 10. I think it was... But it was between Timor and Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. When I was at CDC, I went and did selection and they said come back and, uh, yeah. So you were invited to do the reinforcement cycle. What stopped you proceeding with that? No, no, I wasn't invited. I got to the end of selection. So you can get to the end of selection and they can ask you to never come back. You can get to the end and they can ask you to come back and do selection again or you can get to the end and they ask you to proceed and I was asked to reapply. Okay, because so often I'm told of the sort of the binary, you pass and are invited or you have failed, sorry, that middle option of pass but not a spot come and let's do this again another time. I haven't heard that one before. I don't think it was a matter of not having a spot. I just think that their recruiting system was clever enough to pick up that I have a crap personality. So <laughs> We've talked about your, I guess, evolution, your maturation, and uh, I know from some other SAS guys, they've all said, oh, we tended to prefer to recruit above the age of, say, 25, someone with a bit more life experience and maturity, and you might have just been a bit on the youngest side then. And Yeah, I think I was very young. I didn't strategize it well enough. Like I went in supremely fit. I was always a fit person. You know, I was running like 750 BFAs and, and really good times on the 3.4 and I went in like cut, ready to go. And when it came lucky dip, I had no fat on me. I was just catabolizing and I really felt the effects of that. It really taught me a lot about how to get fat and fit at the same time, which is the excuse I give everyone these days you know, putting on weight. <laughs> Fast forward back to post your Afghanistan deployment because it is a fantastic achievement on completing the selection course and I guess you've then grown up a bit, you've had operational experience and then you've gone on to do well as a 
regular infantry soldier, did you then think, well, maybe I will go back and give it a go or that three weeks, no, I'm not doing that again? No, I did go back and uh, same thing happened. And I think it was oh, mate. that time I went in fat and fit. It was good. I, I remember the effects of going in with a bit of pot belly. I'm lucky dip. I had a lot of energy and I went with a bunch of friends at the time and it was I sort of always aimed at that, you know, like how do you go from wanting to be in the NRL to being a regular Joe in the army? And I thought, well, I'll you know, go special forces. I think where I got into, where I finished in the military was just a combination of circumstances, you know. I left the army as a sniper team leader. I never joined the army and said I wanted to be a sniper. It was things just kept happening and like what's next, what's next. And coming back from Afghan, that was a busy year for me. I forgot all about this until you made me send my resume in. I come back from Afghan and had a few weeks off and while the unit was still on leave, they started selection for Duke of Gloucester Cup. And when I did that and we won, we came back on the Friday and I started recon on the Monday. And the recon course is, it's a hard course. Well, it was when I did it. I hope it still is. I finished that, got posted straight to the unit and I think I did Cambrian patrol after that or sub one. And the Cambrian patrol is like the international version of Dog Cup. Each army has eight of their best soldiers and they send them over and compete in the UK in like the worst place called uh, Sunny Bridge, I think it is, in Brecon's Beacons. Oh, the Brecon's, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not a very friendly place. You know, we did that. We got the silver medal the first time I did it, which was cool. It was real cool. And then we come back from Cambrian and I think I did snipers that year. Back then it wasn't abnormal for people to do like three sniper courses before they get in. Two of the best snipers I've ever known. One of them is a huge part of the sniper defence industry and the other one is he was like top shot for years. He's a big farm boy. He competed internationally in like the international sniper games and just destroyed targets. He did like three courses. Both those guys had to do it three times. So it was like my first time doing snipers. And I did something else that year. I think it was like sub one or sub two. Busy year. Very. So you pass SAS selection twice. Again, congratulations. Fantastic achievement. You also get the hint and uh, don't do that again, but you find yourself sniping. Talk to me about being a sniper. How accurate is Call of Duty? What escapes a lot of people is how difficult being a sniper is. And I saw a meme ages ago. It's like everyone wants to be a sniper until it's time to do sniper things. It's like the picture of this guy carrying this huge pack just stinging up this hill. And that's what it is. It's like people picture you just get inserted into this area with your rifle and a litre of water and you prosecute your target and you disappear. But shooting's a very small part of the sniper course. You spend like the first two weeks just being pumped on the range until you know how to shoot. And then boom, you're outfield and shooting just becomes a thing you do. The major skills that they test you on, they're called the badge skills. You have to pass at the end of your course. You have to be able to stalk, which is the a trained supervisor, a trained uh, observer, like a sniper will be sitting in a grid square in a position and you have to navigate to him and not be seen and set up your rifle, set up cam and shoot at him. He's sitting there and you've got these guys around you in yellow suits, uh, high-vis suits, and he's got to walk them onto you. If he's not within a metre, then you get to fire another shot and he's like looking in your area. And stalking's real hard because then he gets up and moves and behind him is a steel plate and then you've got to put a live round in and hit it. So like you could have cuffed it and pretended the whole time. He holds up a number, you've got to call the number and you've got to judge the distance within 10%. So like stalking is a combination of shooting and navigating. The other bad shoots are like observation. You've got to do an observation stand where they line all these objects out in front of you and you've got to identify them. And then there's the nav phase, static nav. There's one more that's escaping me but... That's the majority of sniping is that and people don't realise that sometimes it's a boring, hard job. The thing about ISR, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, is they're usually forward of the forward edge of the battle area, which is 20, 30, 40 kilometres ahead of support. So you'll go out five days before the regular battalion gets out there. So you've got to take five days worth of food and water and radio and you've got a small team too, so you don't have like eight people. So that's like two to four people carrying all that stuff and you're out there for days and you've got no support because everyone's like kilometres behind you. So those are the sorts of things that escape people when they think of snipers. 
Yeah, that brief summary of the stalking you gave, summarised like that, it sounds really cool, but I think the execution yeah. just sounds like it would be really painful and tedious and difficult. It is. It's, it's painful, but it's fun because everybody's stuffing up around you. You know, you're not just fumbling around and doing bad, like everyone's doing bad. And when I did the course, you know, as I said, there was a guy who did the course three times. I did the course with him twice. And by the time he did his second course, which was my first, he was like a weapon at stalking. And I just remember he was like the only guy like passing, passing, passing all the way through the course. And basically you just fail everything through the course over and over again and then you just pass on the day of um, the assessments. Yeah, stalking does sound fun, but it's hard. There's a lot of rules too. Not rules, but there's a lot of things they teach you. And it's one of them things in the army. The army teaches you to do stuff and it's like, hey, you know, I'll just do my own thing. But, they, you know, they had a lot of science behind how you position your cam in front of you and behind you and on you and where you position your body. We had some real good snipers teaching us on the course and they'd give you real good feedback. I was taking note of everything that I failed on as I went through the course. It's called Groundhog Week. It's like you do two stalks a day, two observes a day, two static nabs. You can do that over and over and over and over and over again. By the time I got to the core, at the end of the course, I had like this notepad and when I was setting up and I was on target, I'd flip the notepad out and I'd go down the list of all the things that I've stuffed up and it'd be like, am I behind a tree? Is my cam going to fall over, blah, 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 and going through the list. So it was quite interesting. You end up being a sniper team leader. Does that come from experience and seniority skills of some of those other natures like the stalking stuff? Is that because you were a really good shot? How does that come to be? It's just time. If you're a good sniper and you've been there for a while, the natural progression is sniper team leader. And that usually means you're the observer. You've got to a point where you sort of understand the flow of the rifle and where a round's going to go. You go do your team leader course and then you find yourself as the team commander and then the observer for the shooter. So it's your responsibility to sort of teach this guy at the same time, put his rounds on target. My experience as a team leader is very brief, but it was just a series of cuffing. I remember being behind the lens a few times, correcting a guy. He'd fire around and like miss and then I'd correct him and then he'd hit the target and he'd be like, oh, good correction. And in my head I'm like, oh, I just cuffed the hell out of that. So, Do you know what your longest distance shot was or? Don't. I get asked this all the time. I know that I've shot over 1,500. I'm thinking it's like two or something like that because we had the AMR with the MPI, which is the AMR anti-material rifle of 50 cal, and the MPI is the multi-purpose incendiary, I think it's called. It's, it's a round with an incendiary inside it so and a trace and it's got a piece of RDX, like uh, explosive. So you can see that puppy land from a while away. One of the last things I did in the Army was we were on a range just shooting stuff with this target round and you couldn't miss. It was a bloody good round. kind of looked like a like a lollipop with all the different colours telling you what the round was. So, yeah. So, Ryan, you've accomplished a lot in the military as a regular soldier. You've passed the special forces process a couple of times. You've deployed a couple of times. You've become a senior sniper. What is it then after 12 years that makes you decide to go from full-time to being a reservist? I think it was a combination of things. I was sitting on a hill. We'd just sitting out there for the sake of being on the hill so the commander could say he was saturating the air with ISR. And I was just staring at nothing. And this is in Australia? Yeah, and I was just sitting there staring at nothing. The guy next to me said I had a shooter with me and I had a very close friend of mine who was a, one of my mentors in sniping, just had some time off and wanted to come out. He said, I'm sick of sitting on hills and staring at nothing for a living. And it was then in my head it ticked over. So I went back and I had a conversation with a friend of mine. His name is Chris Lambert. He was the father of Matthew Lambert, like that was killed on our trip. Chris has now passed too, sadly, recently. And uh, he, I said to him, I was thinking about getting out of the army, but I wasn't sure. And he said he spent years in the police. He'd spent a long time climbing this ladder to get to the top. And he got to the top and he had a look around, you know, he's like, hmm, fair enough. And he realised that the ladder was against the wrong wall. And he said... When you climb the ladder, don't forget there's always going to be another wall to put it against and there'll always be a taller ladder. So you've got to find that right wall and you've got to climb it and you've got to put yourself in a seat that when you look around you're comfortable and you're happy. And it sort of added more to it for me. And I called a friend for advice who was at the time a manager for an FSR team in the defence industry and I said, look, I'm keen to get out. 
and I need your advice. Like, should I get out? Because he'd spent years in the SAS, this gentleman. And he said, there's a job coming up. Do you want to come down and interview for it? Because at the time I had a bit of a reputation in the reconnaissance community for a book I wrote and some stuff I did for HF theory and some books I wrote on radios and stuff. And, you know, he said, come down, interview. And I still to this day feel like there was a really qualified field engineer that went and then there was me and they accidentally picked up my resume and gave me the job. You know, the opportunity came. They said, all right, you're going to post a singer at the end of the year as a corporal. And then I got this job offer to post to, to move to Brisbane and be a field engineer or field service representative and sort of consult on RF physics and teach soldiers how to use the equipment. And I was like, I'm taking that job. I'm getting the hell out of here. And I did. It all came together. It's great. And before you finally shed the uniform, I guess, while you're in the reserves, you work with Norforce in 2019. Can you briefly explain for the listener what Norforce is and what that role was? Yeah, so I got into Norforce because I was still working with the defence and it was a good opportunity to sort of test the stuff that I was teaching and make it relevant. Norforce is a wonderful unit. If you're at any stage like I was and jaded and sick of sitting on hills and staring at nothing, Norforce is the place to go because I was just blown away. So Norforce is Northwest Mobile Force. It's a series of RFSUs, which is the surveillance units that operate in Northern Australia. And what they do, it's operational. So they're constantly out there in their areas of operation. They're protecting Australian borders. They're reporting to the Navy. They're reporting to the Home Affairs teams. And one of the last gigs I did was Op Resolute, where I was just sitting on an island north of Australia, just south of PNG, sitting on an island in OP. And I was doing that exact job that wanted me to get out of the army, just sitting on a hill. But this time it was real. The whole series of events that got us onto that hill was like the insertion on the water and the, the exfil and the assets. And it was like, you know, I'm doing something real for once. For, for a long time I hadn't done an operation. I think one of their strongest capabilities is the Australian Army's Aboriginal community program that they have. So North Force have this really good relationship with the Aboriginal community and they have a great recruiting process for Indigenous personnel as well. So commanding officers can sort of navigate a lot of the barriers that people get when they're recruiting to allow the Indigenous people. And these these guys are just assets. We had this guy on this patrol who was Matu from the Matu tribe. And his English was, you know, he could communicate. This guy taught me so much about the bush, so much about the tribes and stuff. I could swear this guy could see in the dark. We'd be sitting on the beach and looking for our ex-fill. We had night vision. I had double night vision. He just says boat. And he didn't even have his night vision on. He just goes boat. And he's pointing. I look over and I see him pointing and there's the boat on the horizon. And he just kept doing that. I loved having this guy on watch with me because he would just see a boat on the horizon before anyone would. And that's their biggest asset because they patrol out into the indigenous communities. They have these in these engineer programs where they work with the communities. It's it's a really good unit and they're doing great stuff up there as well. It sounds like you have a really positive, engaging experience then, which is essentially your final main military experience. But instead of that being a temptation, oh, actually, do I want to go? That's a good swan song for you. That'd be fair to say. Yeah, it was really good. I think I was at the limit. It was that time where you have to sit behind a desk sort of part of my career and I wasn't really ready for that. So this was a good opportunity to do it one last time, one last kick. And I loved it. I still maintained a relationship with that unit because at the time I was working in the defence industry. I was travelling around the country and teaching soldiers these programs. So they had some great tech with them and they didn't know how to use it. Every opportunity I'd pop out to see those guys and show them something. Well, you leave the army, you decide to go into politics and it's definitely another form of service, of public duty, but I guess what inspired this decision? It was a combination of things, but realistically it was I spent a long time in the army and, you know, over a decade serving it took getting out to realise that I was driven by service. That was one of the things that kept me in there. I looked for other avenues to serve, how I could serve again, I serve my community. And at the time I was sort of just sitting around barbecues with my mates and we're just complaining about the government and complaining about this and that and all sorts of things. And, you know, we'd go home from the barbecue and do nothing about it. And I thought, well, what can I do? How can I do stuff? So I started volunteering and helping out a friend and uh, at the time a friend of mine had run for parliament in Townsville and I was looking at the stuff he was doing and it was just so good. It was amazing. It was inspiring. So, you know, I put my hat in the ring for an opportunity to serve my community 
and you know, this is the area where I live. It's where I want to raise a family and you know, I wanted to be part of their future and shape a future for them in my community. And you were a candidate for Queensland State Parliament in 2020 and then after that you were a federal candidate and you then announced a withdrawal from politics. Can you talk me through both your political and your mental health journey? Yeah, I think uh, the mental health journey's created a lot of lessons for me. I, I worked pretty hard in the state campaign and that sort of built a reputation around the kind of person I am, the kind of candidate I am. So the opportunity to go federally came up and I put my hand up again, got endorsed. So what I did is I just did what I did with the state campaign is I just worked my butt off. I you know, got up early every day and then I would go to bed late at night. I was going to community meetings. I was door knocking. I was doing as much as I could. And it was fun because when you help someone, you're like, oh, how cool would it be to do this for a living? And then you realize that's what you're trying to do. You're basically running selection for this for a living. And as a result of that, I paid off everything, paid off my mental health treatments, everything that I needed for DVA. I stopped seeing the psych. I stopped getting my back treated and I stopped socializing and I, I stopped spending time with my partner. And then one day it all just caught up. The opportunity to sort of withdraw came and what followed from that withdrawal was a very dark time of my life. A lot of bad things happened to me mentally. And the lesson is not to put aside that treatment and the need to recognize. I wrote an article recently on the benefits of university for students because I've gone on to study a fair bit. And one of the things I said in that lesson was, you know, acknowledge that you are a veteran and that you have met a lot of challenges in your life. And once you've acknowledged it, sort of put it aside, but do not under any circumstances sacrifice your treatments for more time to study, more time for work or more time to socialize. And I did that and I paid for it. It destroyed me. It destroyed me really bad. I live by the idea that it was the greatest thing that never happened to me. And how are you going today with your health, Ryan? I learned the need to sort of balance it and I created a program. There's some great people in Brisbane doing wonderful things with veterans and it sort of inspired me to contribute to those more deeply. I had a lot of friends in the community that were willing to help in the veteran space. It is kind of sad because when you're going through a crisis, you need help right there. And the average wait time for mental health in our area is like six weeks. And that's one of the reasons that sort of drove me into politics. I got sick of my mates killing themselves. And when I was going through my crisis, I needed help and I needed it right there. And I couldn't get it. When I went to the doctor and said, I need to go, tried to check myself into the psych ward. You can't do that. Apparently you need a book in to see a doctor and all sorts of stuff. I get a call out of the blue from somebody I know in the mental health space. And they said, what's going on? And then the next thing I know, I'm booked in to see the psych. And I think it was just, um, you know, I just knew someone. So I got lucky. I got lucky because I knew somebody in the process. And I don't think it's that case for a lot of people. They go through that crisis and the wait periods and it's just sad. And Ryan, we're recording today at Gaythorne RSL. Talk to me about your role in the RSL, how it came to be and what your goals are for this RSL. So getting into the RSL was a lot like what I did with politics you know I'd sit around and sort of say you know the veteran this veteran that the system sucks and I thought what am I going to do about it and the RSL down the road had an AGM coming up and I thought I'll run for the board because that's where decisions are made and I did I ran for the board and I ran you know I said to the to the members look I, I want to modernize the approach that we deliver to the RSL sorry that we deliver to veterans you know I got elected under the board then I got put into the defense relationship role the defense liaison officer it's my responsibility on the board to represent the board on the base and I took that and I worked hard on that role. You know, I reached out to the welfare officers and talked about the modernised approach the RSL is delivering and they're delivering a very good approach right now. The RSL is not about cheap beers and palmies anymore. You know, like soldiers need meaningful employment. They need education. They need training. And the RSL has some great approaches to the contemporary needs of veterans the problem is communicating those to the soldiers. So I'd make every opportunity to get on base and tell them. The RSL is about advocacy. The RSL has great employment programs. The RSL has the Gallipoli Research Program. The RSL has training systems and scholarships, like all the things that modern soldiers need. And getting it to them is what we're best at now. And I think some of the stuff we've done as a board is just makes you feel very rewarded. I've always considered service to be our way of of thanking society for our very existence. So. 
Well, Ryan, you've had quite a career and you're going on to do many good things for the community in that life after service. So thank you for all that you've done and thank you for speaking with me today. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity and I would like to say on behalf of the Gaythorne RSL board, our approach to modernising the service delivery to modern veterans, this is one of the, the many things that we're trying to do and you coming in today has been a tremendous opportunity for us and we genuinely appreciate it. So thank you. I'm Alex Lloyd and you've been listening to Life on the Line. That was my conversation with Ryan Shaw. My thanks go to Ryan for hosting us at Gaythorn RSL to conduct the interview. Follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at LOTL Pod on Twitter and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thank you for listening and lest we forget. Thank you.